0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Mark Roy. For those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, the provost here at Goucher College, and I'm delighted to welcome you all this evening, um, particularly those of you who came from off-campus and braved what may have been uh, still difficult driving conditions. I know I was talking with a few people just yesterday who were telling me that ordinarily 10-minute drives are taking them 45 minutes or longer. And so those of you who ventured out, uh, thank you for for coming and joining us this evening. There are a lot of things that we're proud of here at Goucher, certainly the members of our community, the faculty, the staff, the students, and and our alumni, and, and, and others. Um, and there are other treasures that are more material, and one of those, of course, is the fabulous uh, Jane Austen. Uh, uh, Jane Austen, excuse me. <laughs> no, we're not auctioning it. <laughs> um, our, our fabulous Jane Austen collection, and of course, we're very uh, proud and grateful to our alumna Alberta Hirschheimer Burke and her husband. Uh, Henry Burke, who loved obviously Jane Austen, um, but also Goucher College and uh, entrusted us with this incredible uh, uh, world-class collection of materials related to, uh, to Jane Austen. We're also very, very proud of the series that we have of uh, scholars and residents. Uh, I believe we're now in our tenth year, and when, in the few years that I've been here at Galbraith, I've been privileged to hear some really terrific speakers who have come, spent time in the in the archives, working with the materials in the collection, and then given some very, very interesting talks. I'm one of those people who not only says that lifelong learning is important, but I truly, truly believe in it. And these are great opportunities for us to learn. Learn more about not only Jane Austen but the really interesting and exciting work that people are doing around her life and her work and so forth and so uh, this is a great opportunity for us to continue to grow and to learn um, in our lives I also want to just mention that this is uh, one of the initiatives that we have that is directly linked to our special collections and, and our archives and it is a magnificent collection A set of collections. I have only glimpsed portions of it, um, and every time I come over here, including just yesterday, I get to see new, wonderful treasures. And we're of course delighted to be in this new home in the Athenaeum. Um, The special collections as and archives, as you may know, used to be in the basement of the Julia Rogers Library, in what was becoming some very cramped space. And we have just some fabulous new quarters where people can work comfortably where they can lay out uh you know manuscripts or other uh, artifacts that they're working with yesterday as i was walking through there there were a couple of students working on some some uh, some very interesting things they showed me some some old newspapers and books that they were working with from the 1800s and and of course our our scotland residence was there working as well so um, it's a it's a great treasure that we have here and we're very proud to be able to share portions of that um, um, and of the work that's being done around it with you. So welcome. Um, And at this point, I'll turn things over to Nancy Magnuson, our librarian, who will uh, introduce our speaker.
1: Hi. Welcome from me, too. We're really glad to have you here. We're thrilled to have Juliet Wells with us this week and to bring her to you tonight. Um, It's been really exciting for us to see the high caliber of applicants for our competitive Burke Residency Program, and the continued enthusiasm for the study of Jane Austen. It's been ten years since, Mark, uh, as Mark said, since we dreamed up this program. And Juliet is is actually our sixth visitor. We do this every other year, and the first residency was in 2002. Juliet Wells is associate professor of English at Manhattanville College, where she has taught since 2003. She's enjoying being in Baltimore, where she did her B.A. and M.A. degrees at at Johns Hopkins, as well as a bachelor's in music at at Peabody. She has a a long list of credentials. I'm not going to read it all to you. I was was tempted. It's pretty impressive. Um, She also has advanced degrees, including her Ph.D. from Yale. Her current book, book project, Everybody's Jane, Austin in the popular imagination, is under contract and due to be completed during her sabbatical next year. She's written and edited lots of other articles, chapters, and uh, conference presentations. She's also had many prestigious grants and fellowships. Notably, last summer, she was supported by the Jane Austen Society of North America's International Visitors Program to carry out research at Jane Austen's House Museum in Chawton, England. So please join me in welcoming Juliet Wells.
2: Thanks so much, Nancy. Believe me, I sounded much worse yesterday. I'm very proud of myself for croaking as well as I can. Can everybody hear me? All right. Okay. Thanks so much, Nancy, for that kind introduction. I have a few other thank yous um, to Peter McCarthy and Tara Olivero, for their help in arranging my visit and with the archives, and for their warm welcome, also Cassie Brand and Kate Danels. It is a great honor to be here as the Biennial Burke Austin Scholar in Residence. And as Nancy mentioned, I was an undergrad here, so in here in Baltimore, it's a particular pleasure for me to be back. I enjoyed my years in Baltimore very much, and I think of the city as being my first love as a city, the one I imprinted on. Having the chance to speak to you here tonight about Jane Austen is a real joy. So you may be wondering what I'm going to talk about, since I've chosen one of those titles that don't give anything away, and I haven't even added a subtitle to clear things up. You might guess that it has something to do with Valentine's Day, but that's just a happy coincidence. I have two things in mind with this title. The first and the most important has to do with my ongoing research into Jane Austen's popularity today among non-academic readers, people who read Austen for the pleasure of it, for the love of it, not because doing so is part of their study or their work. Since you chose to come to a talk with Jane Austen and love in the title, you might be one of these people yourselves. I'm interested in why readers love Austen and especially in how they act out that love, whether they blog or they write sequels inspired by Austen's novels, or perhaps travel around England following in Austen's footsteps, those sorts of things. I'll talk a bit tonight about my recent research into several of those areas. The second sense in which I think about this title is as an exclamation of outrage. I'll use the phrase in two sample sentences so you can see what I mean. For the love of Jane Austen, will people stop adding sea monsters and zombies to her novels? (laughs) Or, for the love of Jane Austen, could someone please make a film adaptation that doesn't butcher Austen's dialogue? (laughs) If you understand the phrase this way, and those were sample sentences, those were not my sentiments. If you understand the phrase this way, love of Jane Austen means something very different, maybe even opposite to the sense in which I used it at first. If you really loved Jane Austen, so some folks think, you wouldn't mess with her writing or even get too curious about her life. You'd just read her magnificent novels again and again. While others think and say that they love Jane Austen so much that they just had to write something inspired by her or visit the house she lived in, or whatever. Professors like me don't usually like to talk about love for authors. It seems unprofessional to us. There's something a little macho about the discipline of literary criticism. It's like we get points for studying works that are really challenging that not everyone can understand. To many of my colleagues, teaching or writing articles about books that ordinary people like seems like a cop-out. Read them for your book group. Come to class to think about the hard stuff. We English professors sometimes tend, you might have noticed, to be pretty snobby about popular culture when popular culture gets its hands on our authors. We tend to focus on what a film adaptation leaves out or gets wrong or makes up rather than on how a given film balances commercial imperatives with artistic intentions and literary inspiration. Let me quote just briefly from two scholars who have thought from distinct perspectives about the differences between reading for pleasure and reading the way that professors teach you to do it. My first quotation is from Anne Bergren, a literary critic who practices what's known as reader response criticism. This school of criticism emphasizes what readers bring to texts and how readers read. In an essay titled Reading Like a Woman, Anne Berggren characterizes the kind of reading that women tend to do on their own as being personal, accepting, emotional, addictive, in contrast to the approaches of literary scholars, which she calls critical cognitive my second quotation comes from a trio of scholars who have studied the behavior of fans. Television fans, movie fans, those kinds of fans. According to Jonathan Gray, Cornell Sandvos, and C. Lee Harrington, fans engage with texts not in a rationally detached, but in an emotionally involved and invested way. In other words, fans and general readers are the ones who love Jane Austen, scholars, supposedly, are the ones who think about and criticize her works. One of the downsides of researching Austen and popular culture, when you try to avoid, as I do, the pitfall of always comparing adaptations directly to their sources and complaining about lack of fidelity, is that you don't get much of a chance to talk about Jane Austen's actual writings. So I want to take a moment now to think about how Jane Austen writes about love as opposed to other forms of affinity and appreciation. I'm gonna read you two brief dialogues from Sense and Sensibility, um, Austen's first published novel, which came out in 1811. Both dialogues have to do with the feelings that Eleanor Dashwood, the more pragmatic and less romantic of the Dashwood sisters, has for Edward Ferris, the man she will eventually marry after lots of obstacles are overcome. The first dialogue is between Eleanor and her mother. Here's Mrs. Dashwood speaking of Edward. I love him already. I think you will like him, said Eleanor, when you know more of him. Like him, replied her mother with a smile. I can feel no sentiment of approbation inferior to love. (laughs) You, You may esteem him. I have never yet known what it was to separate esteem from love. And now the second dialogue, which is between Eleanor and her younger sister, Marianne. I do not attempt to deny, said she, Eleanor that I think very highly of him, that I greatly esteem, that I like him. Marianne here burst forth with indignation. Esteem him, like him, cold-hearted. Eleanor, oh, worse than cold-hearted, ashamed of being otherwise. Use those words again and I will leave the room this moment. Eleanor could not help laughing. Of course, Austin is writing in both of these cases about love for a person, for a potential mate, rather than love for the works of an author but it's still striking to think of how Austin's present-day enthusiasts tend to sound like Mrs. Dashwood and Marianne, rather than like Eleanor. Let me share with you now as an example a few comments from visitors to Jane Austen's house museum, which is located in the village of Chawton, about 80 miles from London. And I have a map, which is a bit hard to see. Okay, so London... Mm, laser pointer. point. Okay. we go. London is there, Chauten is there. They look like they're not that far apart, but Chauten is distinctly in the the countryside. I have a couple of pictures to show you as well. Some of you have probably been to this place. There's Jane Austen's house from across the street. Um, It is located hard on the street, Um, but it has a very beautiful back garden, which is very peaceful and lovely. Um, one of the most famous rooms that visitors like to see is the room in which Jane Austen did her writing and the desk, which she is believed to have used, which is hard to see. It's kind of behind the dining table. I'm going to sneak out and point it to it. And there's a picture of tourists, <laughs> such as the ones who talk to me. Austin lived in what was then called Chawton Cottage, along with her mother, her sister, and their dear friend, Martha Lloyd, from 1809 until Jane's death in 1817. Last summer, as Nancy mentioned, with the support of a grant from the Jane Austen Society of North America, I spent a month at Jane Austen's house museum. As part of my research into why people care about Jane Austen, I was interested in what visitors to the house thought about her, and what difference they felt it made to their understanding of her to set foot in the house where she composed, completed, all six of her major novels. Literary tourism, visiting authors' houses and other sites associated with writers, has been practiced for centuries, but it has just begun to be investigated seriously by scholars, and I was curious to see how the visitors to Austin's house compared with other literary tourists'. This research took the form of interviewing and surveying visitors, as well as reading the visitor's comment book to see what people wrote when they weren't being asked directly by the likes of me, why they had come, and what being at Jane Austen's house meant to them. Let me just say in passing, having always been the kind of person who enjoyed reading other people's comments in visitors' books, I was impressed with myself for having found a scholarly justification for doing so. (laughs) It really is fun, you learn a lot. I was hoping to hear from people who might not otherwise ever go on record about their interest in Jane Austen, and I did. It was especially valuable to hear from British people and international visitors who don't necessarily think about Austen the way that Americans do, and also to hear from older generations of visitors who tend to have a distinctive perspective on Austen. Here are the kinds of comments that turn up in the guest book at Jane Austen's house as spontaneous effusions from visitors. I love Jane Austen with a heart. Two exclamation points. (laughs) Um, And that visitor was from Connecticut. (laughs) This visitor is from Spain. This is a very happy day for me because one of my dreams is to come here to visit my favorite writer in the world, my dearest Jane Austen. Thank you for your words and illusion, Jane. And from Massachusetts, for all you inspire, thank you. I was very struck by the visitors who wrote comments addressed directly to Jane Austen, thanking her, as if she was present somehow and could hear them. And let me share a few of the responses to the surveys that I conducted. In addition to asking everyone a few basic questions about themselves, I had a long version of the survey in which I asked in a lot of detail what people found interesting about the House Museum and what they knew about Jane Austen, and I had a short version with just three open-ended questions. Why did you come to Jane Austen's house today? How would you describe the experience of your visit? What does Jane Austen mean to you? The answers to that last question were especially revealing. Not everyone was comfortable thinking in those terms. In response to the question, what does Jane Austen mean to you, one 35-year-old man from Britain answered, cannot really phrase easily. Others were more forthcoming. Jane Austen is my role model in many ways, wrote a 13-year-old girl from Australia. A 19-year-old young woman from the U.S. wrote, Jane Austen is the reason I read and travel. Her books are very enlightening and they inspire me to do a lot more with my life than I would. Not the content per se, but the feeling of achievement and bliss that her books deliver. A 19-year-old young woman from England wrote, she is an inspiration not just for her imagination and wonderful novels, but for writing them during a time when female authors had to persevere to get their works published. I also admire her determination for both herself and her heroines to marry for love, not money. A 16-year-old girl from the U.S. wrote, Jane Austen represents the ideal woman. Unusual of the time, she was able to create a life without a husband and felt no obligation to perform the expected female duties. I find her very inspiring. And from the older generation, an 85-year-old man from Winchester, England, the closest city to Chawton, said, She's a living person who actually lived in Hampshire and Winchester, so one is brought up with her and brought up with her novels, which I read first when I was 16 at school. Northanger Abbey was my set book, meaning required reading, before the war, meaning the Second World War. So I always had a great deal of affection and admiration for her. Can't say the same for Dryden, who was our set poet. (laughs) And finally, a 71-year-old man from England told me about how his wife reads Jane Austen. If she's ever feeling poorly, she takes Pride and Prejudice to bed with her and reads the parts she likes. <laughs> she has read the whole book, but she doesn't read it as a book, but in parts. Because of her, I like Jane Austen's novels too. Just from this small sample of responses, you get a sense of what I was looking for from interviewing these visitors, glimpses into what, why Austen's writings matter to them as expressed in their own words. You can certainly find lots of comments about Austen on blogs these days, but contrary to the impression you'll get from the media, not everybody blogs. In case you're interested, I'll mention just briefly a few books that also report perspectives on Jane Austen from readers outside the academy. Mm. Oops, Too far, go back. Okay, there we are. Nope. (laughs) There, um, The Jane Austen Society in the UK published this book in 2000, Jane Austen, a celebration whose editors offer, they say, a view of what Jane Austen means to people who have distinguished themselves in various walks of life. There are lots of scholars and literary writers in the lineup, but also other folks, including Prince Charles, who writes in a foreword that Austen's ability to continue to give pleasure to countless numbers of her readers could not be a better cause for celebration. It doesn't. Commit him to actually his own view. The Jane Austen Society of Australia published their own version in 2001, Jane Austen Antipodean Views, in which they cast a wider net by writing letters to hundreds of Australians and New Zealanders who came from all walks of life, asking for a personal response to Jane Austen. We wanted to know, say the editors, if the letter's recipients could remember a first reading of a Jane Austen novel, if they reread her books, if they were forced to read her books at school when they would rather have been playing sport. We asked if their first reaction to Jane Austen had changed over time. I too have found these basic open-ended kinds of questions to be very illuminating. I recently was invited to chair a panel discussion at the Morgan Library in New York about adaptations of Jane Austen, and the first question I asked of the participants, all of whom had created new versions of Austen's novels, was about their earliest encounter with Jane Austen. So many of these encounters happen outside the classroom. Mothers give pride and prejudice to their 10-year-old daughters, or 12-year-olds happen upon a film version and then seek out the original novel. Even those encounters that do happen in classrooms can be revealing, especially when the reader in question is a boy. I was particularly interested to hear the first encounter story from an editor at Quirk Books, the man who cooked up the idea of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. His name is Jason Rekulak. It doesn't appear on the cover, but he's the one who who came up with this idea. Jason recalled being a 16-year-old high school student in southern New Jersey, Assigned to write a book report on sense and sensibility. He got stuck after six chapters and stopped reading. He says that now it amazes him that he thinks the best part of his job is when he gets to sit in the room, close the door, and read an Austin novel cover to cover over a couple of days. Since I mentioned the Morgan Library, let me take a moment for a wholehearted plug for their current exhibit on Jane Austen, which is titled A Woman's Wit Jane Austen's Life and Legacy. The Morgan, as many of you know, has an unparalleled collection of Austen letters and manuscripts, some collected by J.P. Morgan himself and many donated by Alberta Burke, the Goucher alumna who gave the rest of her extensive Austen collection to her alma mater. Astonishingly, to me anyway, the Morgan has not mounted an extensive exhibit of its Austen materials since the bicentenary of her birth in 1975. If you are not an Austin researcher, you will never have a chance like this to come right up close and read her handwriting on her letters and manuscripts, which are extremely legible, or to see such a wonderful collection of contextual books and color prints from her era. The exhibit is on until March 14th, so you have a couple more weeks to go up to New York and catch it. And if you can't, the Morgan has put a generous selection of digital versions of the manuscripts online on their website as well as bonuses like a gorgeous short film in which prominent writers and thinkers consider the importance of Austin today. I collect stories about love of Austin from my own students, too. I regularly teach an English seminar at Manhattanville College called Jane Austen and Popular Culture. In fact, it's through teaching that seminar that I first began researching in this area. I wanted to share with you a couple of comments from this spring's group of students. At the beginning of every course, I ask each student to fill out a form telling me about herself or himself, including why they chose the course and what they are hoping to get out of it. You'll have to take my word for it, that the responses I'm about to read you just do not, in my experience, show up for courses on any other author. What are your expectations for this course, I ask? What would you like to learn or discuss? I would like to learn more about Jane Austen and hope to be inspired by her. No one, believe me, tells me that they hope to be inspired by Charles Dickens or even Charlotte Bronte. Here's another one. I would like to finally read and analyze Jane Austen's novels so I can discuss them with my mom. That response is from someone named Jane. Another student in the same course volunteered in class discussion a couple of weeks ago that she feels like Jane Austen is a member of her family. She heard about her while she was growing up and always felt like she knew her. Beyond my own interviews and conversations, an important part of my research is to consider what published authors have to say about the personal significance of Austen to them. This takes a little digging, since a lot of essays that sound like they're going to be personal end up being academic or analytical after all. You might think, for example, that the recently released book called A Truth Universally Acknowledged, 33 Great Writers on Why We Read Jane Austen, would be a gold mine for me. With a couple of exceptions, though, the essays in this book head in the rather didactic direction of why we should all read Jane Austen and what we should pay attention to when we do. And of course, hearing from great writers means that we're hearing from a pretty limited group of people. Sometimes, too, authors mention an interest in Jane Austen but don't elaborate very much. As a Baltimore reference, I was recently reading Ann Tyler's novel, The Amateur Marriage, and came across her statement in the Reader's Guide at the end that she considers Austin to be an all-time favorite novelist, um, though Tyler says she came to appreciate Austin relatively late. Tyler says she admires Austin's wry, gentle view of ordinary human foibles. Writings that are more informative about the author's sense of connection to Jane Austen generally come from people who are not, or are not yet, household names. Laurie Smith's memoir, A Walk with Jane Austen, A Journey into Adventure, Love, and Faith, is a case in point. When Smith, who lives in Northern Virginia, began her book project, she was an aspiring writer in her early 30s, with one title to her credit, A Dating Guide for Single Christians. After having been raised evangelical and having gone to a religious college, Laurie Smith expected that she would get married and have kids, but that didn't happen and she found herself having to figure out another kind of meaning for her life. She writes in her memoir about how traveling to sites associated with Jane Austen's life and thinking about Austen as a writer helped her come to terms with her own situation and aspirations. Smith writes about reading and reflecting on, not studying or analyzing. Austin's biography and writings. And Smith shows her readers very movingly how becoming better acquainted with Jane Austen can make a profound difference in the life of an ordinary person. Lest you think that only women readers care about Austen today, let me tell you about another book that forms a kind of complementary pair with Laurie Smith. (laughs) This one is titled Two Guys Read Jane Austen. Those are the two guys. They're reading Jane Austen. It is the third book jointly authored by Steve Chandler and Terrence Hill, who say they have been friends for over 50 years. Here is what Steve Chandler says in his introduction to the book. I had made it through 60-some years without reading Austen at all, and so I thought I was pretty much home free. (laughs) What guy really wants to read Jane Austen? Chandler and his friend Hill took on Austen because their wives suggested that they do so, and they expected, they say, to make fun of her. But they found themselves in this series of emails that comprise the book, more and more interested in the worlds Jane Austen depicts, and also more and more impressed by her artistry. Like the memoirist Laurie Smith, Chandler and Hill connect Austen's writings to their own lives and experiences, and consider themselves enriched by the effort. Two Guys Read Jane Austen is a sustained conversation by two readers who are unapologetically amateurs. It's a little like a non-fictional, more digressive version of Karen Joy Fowler's The Jane Austen Book Club, which depicts characters reflecting on Austen's novels and acting out variants of her plots. I was amused to see that the small publisher of Two Guys, Read Jane Austen, lists the book's genre as literary criticism and essays. Two Guys, Read Jane Austen is literary criticism in the sense that it consists of writing about literature, but it's not the professional kind of thing that we usually associate with that term. A short step down the shelf from authors who find inspiration in Austen are those who seek more pragmatic advice from her novels, and in some cases purvey that advice in turn to readers. Thanks to Lauren Henderson, we have Jane Austen's Guide to Dating, which extracts rules and guidance about courtship from Austen's novels and applies them to the 21st century dating scene. In Dear Jane Austen, A Heroine's Guide to Life and Love, Patrice Hannon imagines Austen serving as a kind of dear Abby for the present day perplexed. A bonus for the Austen fan is that Hannon's version of Jane Austen comments on decisions of hers that readers have always wondered about. So you know, why did she accept Harris Bigwither's proposal and then turn him down? You, you get some insight. And also, this version of Jane Austen, through some very special magic, gives us her opinion on later authors, including George Eliot. She doesn't like George Eliot. I love George Eliot. Christian readers might prefer... Whoops. That one, too. This one first. Christian readers might prefer Sarah Arthur's workbook, Dating Mr. Darcy, A Smart Girl's Guide to Sensible Romance, which includes prayer exercises. Or Deborah White Smith's What Jane Austen Taught Me About Love and Romance which pairs Bible verses with passages from Austen's novels. On the secular side there's even a Jane Austen tarot set (laughs) for those who would like to interpret their own situations using tarot archetypes linked with Austen characters. On the fictional side Marilyn Brandt's new novel, According to Jane, has Jane Austen whispering advice directly into the ear of the contemporary heroine. All of these books attest to and perpetuate the popular function of Austen's writings as a guide to modern life. So you might be wondering, what do all of these popular materials have to do with Goucher's Austen archives? My research here this week concentrates on two questions— the first has to do with Alberta Hersheimer Burke's collection of Austin-related books, manuscripts, and ephemera. Not so much the contents of that collection as her reasons for assembling it and how she talks about it. I've been looking at Alberta Burke's correspondence, which spans decades, to see how she expressed her motives for dedicating so much time, and of course money, to building this particular legacy. I'm interested in how a Alberta Burke's collection as a tribute to Austen compares with the kinds of tributes more ordinary readers choose to offer today, for instance, by writing books inspired by Austen's novels. I'm also curious about how Alberta Burke compares with a woman from our own era who has used her considerable wealth to assemble and make public a collection of books on and by Austen and other early women writers from England. Sandy Lerner, who co-founded Cisco Systems, cultivated a love of Austin during her grueling graduate study in computer science at Stanford, and a main focus of her philanthropy in the years since her business success has been the research library on English women writers known as House Library. House Library's connections with Austin are much more intimate than its contents alone. The building itself was the great house of Chawton Village during the time that Austin lived there, and we know that she often visited when her brother Edward, its owner, was in residence. My second focus this week is on Alberta's um, and her husband Henry Burke's roles. Alberta had died, but I think she still had a role, in starting the Jane Austen Society of North America. JASNA, for short, the early archives of which are held here at Goucher. JASNA was founded in 1979 in order to give American fans of Jane Austen a chance to gather and celebrate her without having to cross the Atlantic. The original British Jane Austen Society was founded in 1940. Like any other kind of fans, Austen fans want to get together and talk about her, and long before the internet, JASNA offered that possibility. Over the last 30 years, JASNA has played a crucial role in bringing together Austin scholars and non-academic Austin enthusiasts. As an organization, JASNA sits proudly right on the supposed divide between scholarly and non-scholarly readers. Nothing encapsulates that position like the sight of, yes, eminent Austin scholars wearing Regency dresses for promenades and balls at JASNA meetings. I have been interested to see how the founders of Jazna thought of the contribution it would make. So, to sum up, love of Jane Austen takes many forms and inspires many different kinds of actions. Some, some present-day lovers of Jane Austen act out their appreciation for her novels by composing works of fiction or nonfiction based on or more loosely inspired by her writings. Some lovers of Austen seek to feel closer to her by visiting sites associated with her life, particularly her house in Chawton, and her birthplace in Steventon, a small village several miles from Chawton. Let me digress briefly in the midst of my summing up and mention that Steventon is a very different kind of tourist site, or pilgrimage site, if you will, than Jane Austen's house. The house the Austen family lived in, for the first 25 years of Jane's life in Steventon, no longer exists. What there is to see is very pretty countryside. There, that's where she lived. Um, And also the small parish church in which her father was rector and she worshiped. These days with all the commemorations and donations from Austin lovers around the world, the church seems more like a site of worship for Jane Austen herself. And this picture I have to explain a little bit, this next one, because it's it's hard to see, but it's fabulous. All right, this is on ground level in one side of the church, and behind that grate are lots of tributes, objects, and also written cards from Austin societies and Austin fans around the world. You really do feel like you're glimpsing the Saints' relics through the through the great. Love for Austin can lead too to the desire to share one's enthusiasm with others by joining a society like Jasna or taking part in an online forum such as the Republic of Pemberley, a long standing Austin fans site. In the hands of a person of means, like Sandy Lerner or Alberta Burke, Love of Austen can lead to collecting first editions of her novels and writings by her contemporaries and making those available to other readers and scholars. We are hardly the first generation of people to love Jane Austen. Claire Harmon's book, Jane's Fame, How Jane Austen Conquered the World, which comes out in a couple of weeks in its American edition, reminds us that Austen's popularity has waxed and waned and waxed again since her lifetime. Nor are we the first generation to proclaim our love in in terms more similar to those of the emotional Mrs. Dashwood than to sensible Eleanor. Like Mrs. Dashwood, many Austin fans, including certainly Alberta and Henry Burke, can feel no sentiment of approbation inferior to love. What sets our generation apart is the great variety of forms in which we express our love of Austen and the great numbers of us who take part in this expression. Love for Jane Austen begets love for Jane Austen in many senses. Austen-loving mothers inspire their daughters or sons to read Austen novels or to take courses on Austen. Interest in an Austen film adaptation or enjoyment of a version with zombies or sea monsters or in graphic format, or a group visit to Jane Austen's house, all can lead to curiosity about reading the original novels. As a scholar, I study the traces people leave when they write, create, travel, and gather in response to Austen's writings. I am, as my anthropologist colleagues would say, a participant observer. I ask people why they love Jane Austen, but of course I love Jane Austen too. It is a pleasure and it is a privilege to teach the works of an author that I love, and to have opportunities like this talk tonight to share with you some of my research into the ways that our fellow readers have made manifest their own love for Jane Austen. Thank you.
1: You want answer questions. I would be delighted. Are questions? Uh-huh. yeah um, did you what do you find are some of the differences between the um, ways in which people from different countries well, did you find differences mm-hmm. um, between England the United States Australia Japan
2: that Those differences between American and British readers are very striking, and the way that those differences intersect with age differences are very interesting. Um, I haven't fully analyzed all of the surveys and the data that I collected last summer, but my, my initial sense is that British people think of Jane Austen as being their fellow citizen, their neighbor, especially. I mean, a lot of visitors to the museum come from the surrounding area are not necessarily that well acquainted with Jane Austen or curious about her, but they know she lived there, and they live there, and that makes them neighbors. And so there's there's a sense of intimate connection with Jane Austen that sometimes shades into proprietary you know, feelings. And many British tourists are pretty fascinated by the fact that Americans and others show up from their very different countries and and cultures and also feel a connection with Jane Austen. Obviously, in that case, it's not a geographical one. It's not a sense that... Jane Austen lived here, and I live here too, and that, that gives us something in common, but instead a sense that Jane Austen is, is speaking to more than just people who share her geographical, or her national origins. Um, I don't have a lot to go on in terms of comparing different international groups with each other, but I would say they have more in common with each other than they do with with British visitors.
0: Since you're talking about geography a good bit, uh, I was wondering uh, if other writers have expressed their love to Jane Austen by setting things in her uh, areas that she created. For instance, as an example of that, uh, from a different writer, Angela Thurkel, who was a popular writer in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, was writing a book a year, a novel a year, set in um, uh, varsity uh, right. created by Anthony which mean, She took his geography and repopulated it with people from her kind. Uh, has anybody done that yet with Jane Austen's settings that she had?
2: What ha- tends to happen more with current popular works on Jane Austen is taking her characters, continuing the the novels, sequels, in some cases, writing novels in which characters from different novels of Jane Austen's get to interact with each other. Um, There's also a growing subset of books in which Jane Austen appears as a character. Um, In some cases, there's time travel involved. Either somebody time travels back and meets her. Occasionally she time travels forward and meets us. Um, So There's a lot happening um, with imagining Chawton, um, either imagining present-day people um, in Bath as well. There are a couple of novels in which present-day people find their way to Bath um, in the 1810s and and have experiences there. Um, This is just off off the top of my head, but my, my guess is that Austen lovers would not want to leave her characters behind, would not want to imagine other different characters inhabiting the geographies of her novels because the geographies are, of her novels are not really where it's at they're not that fully developed um and if if you don't have her characters there then i i think you're you're missing a, a huge part of of what austen fans want more of and say they they want they want to write sequels and read sequels because they're sad that jane austen completed only six major novels and they want more they want more after the last page of pride and prejudice yeah it's like it's a good question. Yeah.
1: Did you take your own
2: survey? Some people tried to get me to take my own survey. They said, what does Jane Austen mean to you? And they said, hmm, what does Jane Austen mean to you? And my my feeling with this book project is that I really don't want to think through very thoroughly my own love for Jane Austen for the reason that I don't want it to color what I say about other people's love of Jane Austen. And I'm not sure how strongly this came through in this particular talk, but one of my big aims in the work that I've been doing is not to talk down to this popular material and not to make fun of it, which a lot of scholars do. A lot of school- scholars will play favorites, and they'll say, okay, well, this film, this book, I like. These are worthy of scholarly attention, but the rest of them they are direct. And so I, tr- I try really hard not ever to go on record with a value judgment of, of my own or... You know, saying, well, I love Jane Austen for this reason, and so I'm more interested in people who love Jane Austen for this this reason. And I'll give you one specific example of that. I mentioned several books by Christian authors, and I also have an article coming out shortly on a film version of Pride and Prejudice um, created by filmmakers from the Church of Latter-day Saints, which some of you might know, the Mormon Pride and Prejudice. Um, the Mormon Pride and Prejudice article that I wrote is a con- contribution to a collection on popular representations of Mormons. And I was asked to supply a contributor bio for this collection, and not to mention whether I was a member of the LDS church or not. As it happens, I'm not. And when that article got reviewed by the university press, uh, Utah State, that accepted it, one reviewer thought that I, you know, assumed that I was a member of the LDS church and that I was making certain assumptions or judgments based on that. Not at all. I'm, you know, I am fascinated that LDS members made a film in which they transpose Pride and Prejudice. It's not my interest doesn't come out of a personal connection. Nor am I myself an evangelical Christian. But I'm fascinated by what evangelical Christians are finding in Austin and what they have to say about her. So I'm, I'm trying not to answer those questions, Edie, <laughs> but privately I could.
1: There's a question in the back earlier. I was interested in your play your thought about the uh, recent film adaptation. So, you think it's a good thing because it introduces an audience who are not familiar with often, or is it sometimes disappointing since the film can't really reflect the goal that I of the to?
2: In my way of thinking, there's a big difference in terms of audience between feature films that get shown in theaters and TV series adaptations that show up on Masterpiece Classics and places like that. Um, For instance, my students, my current students, all imprinted on the 2005 feature film version of Pride and Prejudice, the one with Keira Knightley in it, because they all saw it when they were 14. And that was their entry point. That's that's their starting point. They go back and watch the 1995 TV miniseries version of Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth, and it does nothing for them. It seems like a historical artifact. I mean, they, they kind of get... But, I mean, listen, to, I mean, obviously, <laughs> opinions in this room differ, differ from that. And I have a private theory, which I, it is completely untestable, but I have a private theory that for everybody... The, the movie version that you first saw and loved remains your touchstone. And, and that's, that's generationally dependent, and it also depends on the person. So I was, I mean, I've mentioned that I was an undergraduate in Baltimore. I was an undergraduate when the 1990s wave of films came to theaters. And so, you know, for me here is my one personal revelation for you. For me, the Ang Lee version of Sense and Sensibility with a screenplay by Emma Thompson with Emma Thompson and Caitlin's, I imprinted on that, and I saw it before I had read Sense and Sensibility, and the, the more I can remember what I thought about that film and what I thought about the novel after that film, the more I have access into how my students think when they have loved a film and then come to the novel and discover that it's really quite different but maybe there's something in there that connects to what they they loved at first. So again, privately, I will tell you which film and movie adaptations I find unwatchable, but professionally, they're all interesting to me. (laughs) Because they exist, because people did them, people wanted to do them that way, that interests me.
1: Yeah. In your studies of how the different people perceive her, how do you feel there's a gender difference? I
2: mean, did you pick up on how men perceive her differently than women? Men, in my experience, tend to be less forthcoming about the feelings of love, but the feelings of love might be there. And older men, especially British men at Jane Austen's house, tended to credit their wives. They would say, she loves Jane Austen a lot. I'm here because of her. Well, actually, I love Jane Austen, too that kind of thing. But like, like the one 85-year-old gentleman whose comments I read, um, plenty of men in England, I would say by and large more than in the U.S., plenty of men in England were assigned to read a Jane Austen novel growing up. And some of them liked that novel quite a bit and, and came back to it. Um, and, I, and I talk about mothers giving pride and prejudice to their daughters, but there are plenty of moms out there hooking their sons on Jane Austen's novels, sometimes, you know, with the aid of the sea monsters, or the zombies. Um, but it's, it's an interesting question. I'm Certainly the, among professional, high-caliber literary authors, um, Ian McEwen's novel Atonement is an homage to Northanger Abbey. And a very interesting book to think about, Ian McEwen, is kind of solidifying his literary reputation, in a sense, by reaching out to Jane Austen and the great tradition and placing himself there. So there are, there are certainly examples beyond two guys, reading Jane Austen, of, of male readers and, and writers um, giving us their own perspective and their own take on Austen. That said, the gender balance in this room is pretty much what I'm used to seeing in my, <laughs> in my classroom and in Jasnah. <laughs> Do you have any other questions?
1: I to be a teacher in Maryland, and what encouragement would you give to a 15-year-old boy in the back of the English class? Because so often they come to the second page, second chapter,
2: and give up. You know, I don't think that's a problem unique to Jane Austen. I think a lot of teenagers have a really hard time getting their fingers around a lot of works of supposedly great literature, um, and I think as a teacher. I would say remember the example of Jason Rikulak. He could only read six chapters of Sense and Sensibility, but as an adult, he came back to the novel and, and thought something very differently. Thought something very different about it. And even, I mean, not you guys—you're all very enlightened—but many undergraduates, um, you know, will read a 19th-century novel for the first time, and you know that's their first reading. And I feel that. I've done my job by putting that in front of them the first time and that their lives are long, we hope, and they will come back to it and you will have planted a seed. But that's, I'm not sure there's much in the, in the moment that you can do when the guy complains that nothing's happening, they're just getting in and out of the carriages. And I hear this all the time. If you have a choice of which novel to assign, Northanger Abbey is definitely the most promising for the teenage male reader, much, much, much more likely to like Northanger Abbey. There's fast driving, and, and it's, just, it's just a better fit than some of the other ones I recommend. Thank you so much. So.